Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. May Elsinger was raised on a subsistence farm in the bush in northern Alberta. She grew up with an appreciation of farming and knew she wanted to work outdoors. May trained at the University of Alberta in environmental and conservation sciences. As part of that program, she focused on rangeland management. She got her start with rangeland management as a student and then as a full-time biologist with the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration, or PFRA, a branch of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, working with the Community Pastures Program. That is where May first learned about leafy spurge, but also got first-hand experience dealing with rotational grazing systems, brush and weed management, and other management challenges on large marginal pastures. At the closure of PFRA and the divisiture of community pastures about 10 years ago, her job changed to more of a research orientation, experimenting with different native and tame grasses and legumes, and planting pollinator habitats. More recently, May has gotten back out on producers' pastures, collecting forage and grazing management information for the Living Laboratories Eastern Prairies project. May lives in Brandon, Manitoba, and experiments with gardening when she's not out and about exploring Manitoba's multitude of hidden grasslands. Today we're talking with May Elsinger, who is a rangeland biologist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Since the start of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, May has been instrumental in lending her intellectual support for applied research and demonstration projects with a number of partners covering summer grazing strategies, pollinator habitat establishment, and leafy spurge biocontrol strategies. May also supports MBFI by serving as a committee member on our research advisory committee. For this episode, we'll be focusing our discussion on her experience working with leafy spurge, covering how biocontrol measures can be used to reduce its presence. We'll also touch on a previously completed project led by Jane Thornton, a now retired Manitoba Agriculture Extension Specialist, to train cattle to consume leafy spurge to improve pasture utilization. Welcome to the podcast today, May. Greetings. Glad to meet you today. Before we dig into our discussion on leafy spurge, can you share a bit about your history and background working in agriculture? Yeah, I was uh, raised on a subsistence farm in the bush in northern Alberta. So there I grew up with an appreciation of farming, and I knew I wanted to work outdoors. So then for school, I trained at the University of Alberta in environmental and conservation sciences. As part of that program, I focused on rangeland management. And then for work, I got my start with rangeland management as a student and then a full-time biologist with Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration, or PFRA. And that was working with the community pastures program across the prairies. And that's where I first learned about leafy spurge and some of the ways to deal with it. Then about 10 years ago, my job changed to more of a research orientation. Uh, We've tried different planting techniques for native grasses and legumes. We've tried planting pollinator habitat. Uh, More recently, I've been working with living labs back out on producers' pastures, collecting forage and grazing management information. I even got to do a little spurge work for that Living Labs project. So uh, it wasn't long after I got into research 
that uh, the early management of MBFI came knocking on my door, looking for possible projects to work on at their new research and demonstration pastures. So we'll talk about those today. Perfect. Thank you. Let's start with outlining what Leafy Spurge is and why it has such a negative impact on the landscape. Okay, here's what it looks like. It's a yellow plant, greenish, kind of a greenish yellow, sometimes a bright yellow, depending what time of year you're looking at it. And if you were to pluck a stem of it, this white juice will ooze out of it. You could try to pull it up, but it has very deep and extensive root. In fact, it, uh, it can go something like 15 feet down and 15 or more feet laterally or you know, over. It's a perennial. Because of that extensive root system, I think it's one of the most powerful weeds that I know of. You can kick it real hard, but it just keeps on going. As to when to find it, you can start seeing it at its brightest in late May and June. And then uh, in about mid to late July, it starts to starts to kind of turn greenish rather than bright yellow. And, and it will blend in more with the grasses. Um, it will only affect areas that uh, that are not tilled every year. So you wouldn't find it in annual crops, but you'd find it in pastures, roadsides, recreational areas, even in nature preserves. Um, it is edible for some grazers like goats and sheep. They'll actually go after it. Uh, but it is mostly unpalatable for cattle. So the problem for cattle producers with leafy spurge is that when the leafy spurge gets too thick, the cows don't want to eat it there. So you lose pasture, basically. And uh, on areas where there is no cattle grazing, if spurge gets too heavy, it excludes other vegetation from growing. So it kind of goes against the, the nature preservation values and biodiversity values because it excludes all the different plants. Spurge is a tier two noxious weed in Manitoba. And so if it exceeds 20 acres, it is supposed to be controlled. And if it is less than 20 acres, it must be destroyed. That's what the regulation says. That's not always what happens. Does it have any kind of flower or like recognizable leaf characteristic at all? I, I don't know that I've ever seen it is why I'm asking. Like I said, at about the end of May, uh, you're out in western Manitoba, central Manitoba. You're looking around in, in areas that are not tilled, like roadsides, uh, ditches, even like recreational areas. It's the yellow plant, pretty much. You go out and experience it, and uh, and that's what you'll see. There there aren't too many other yellow plants out there at, at that time of year. I'll have to go and look for it when it comes out this spring. Where is it most commonly found in Manitoba? Oh, we find it throughout the southwest and uh, south-central areas of Manitoba. As of 2011, uh, we have some maps that show it was categorized as low in the Red River eastern areas and interlake of the province but that was 12 years ago so i suppose some of those areas uh, that had it as low are probably pretty thick right now like locally and like i mentioned previously it only affects areas that are not tilled every year so it's not in annual crops so it'll be in roadside pastures recreational areas we often think about it being in sandy soil a lot because we have like some wide ranging areas of sands in Manitoba. And we think of it being in sandy soil because a lot of our untilled land is, is that way because it was just too sandy. Like I said before, it's it's not really untilled land. So it's not just in sand, though. It will grow in any type of soil. We've been working on Spurge at MBFI's First Street Pasture, which is located on the North Hill of Brandon since 2015. For reference, questions will be drawn from the following studies, and our listeners can head over to the show notes if they're interested in finding the links for all of these studies. So the first one is the 2015 to 2017 project, which was titled Leafy Spurge Biocontrol Agents, and it was done in collaboration with Bev Dunlop, who was with AAFC, and Jane Thornton with Manitoba Agriculture. The second one is the 2016 to 2017 project titled Leafy Spurge and Cattle, Teaching Cattle to Eat Leafy Spurge, which was in collaboration with Jane Thornton. The 2019 to 2021 project titled Understanding and Manipulating Leafy Spurge Population 
with cattle grazing and biological control agents. And finally, the 2022 ongoing project, which is titled Exploring Enhanced Biocontrol Techniques for Controlling Leafy Spurge. So this has been an ongoing project that you've really had a lot of influence in. In the project information, it references that leafy spurge infests at least 1.2 million acres in Manitoba and has a direct cost to the livestock industry of $10.2 million based on lost carrying capacity. This is a huge cost and a big problem for producers in Manitoba. What are the most commonly applied control tactics and how well do they work? Well, when you say most commonly applied tactics, I'm tempted to answer nothing. For this uh, nothing, there are three possible reasons. The first is too many people just don't know enough about spurge and particularly its threats. Despite all the studies and all the multi-stakeholder effort to push it in the late 90s and early 2000s. The second reason I might say nothing is that those people that do know about it and who have chosen to fight it have largely given up. It is such a powerful plant and it has defied a lot of management techniques. The third reason is that there is a natural tendency of people to act on weeds only when threatened beyond a certain point, like when too many acres of this weed is making cattle not want to use the area. So you remember when I mentioned spurge is one of the most powerful weeds that I know of? I'm not kidding. By the time a producer has an economic motivation to tackle spurge, at that point, the spurge has kind of gone beyond eradication, that is uh, elimination. So the next best thing you can expect is to control the, the amount of thickness of it and the spread of it. So anyways, back to the spirit of your question, uh, which was what are commonly applied tactics? Uh, let's start with chemicals. 2,4-D is commonly used, uh, but it only suppresses the top growth. It's kind of like chopping it off in a way. And you will have it back in the following year, if not later in the same season. Some people will try some more powerful chemicals to get at its roots, get inside of it, and that will hold it back for several years, which is very nice, but there are a few problems associated with these powerful chemicals. First of all, there's a high cost for applying them on large acreages. And maybe you have to come back again in five years to, to reapply. So that becomes costly. Uh, and part of that is that, that root health. Uh, it's coming back by the roots, but there's also a lot of seed in the seed bank. And by the time five years rolls around, you have new plants coming in. So the second problem with using these strong chemicals is that all of these chemicals damage legumes and herbs in your pasture and leave only grass. It looks pretty green, looks clean, but you probably want some plant diversity in your cattle's diet, especially the legumes. So another method uh, people use to tackle spurge is mowing. And you commonly see this practiced by the RMs on highways and roadsides. It only makes sense to do this mowing if you are on land that isn't too rough, which a lot of our pastures are pretty rough, sometimes quite remote. And again, mowing only suppresses the top growth of the spurge. And if you mow at the right time, it will halt viable seed production and not put you at risk of spreading seed somewhere else. And it's better if it is repeated several times during the season, which isn't always feasible as we're out doing other things. The third thing that people have used in the past, and it's not really common, is sheep or goat grazing. Obviously, for cattle producers, there are some challenges for managing this different and smaller livestock. And uh, regrettably, this isn't a treatment you can apply once and then you're done. For example, we had a long-term sheep grazing project for Spurge on a community pasture in Saskatchewan. And their repeated grazing, the sheep's repeated grazing over at least 10 years had been getting the spurge down to very small amounts. So we decided to try something. We fenced out a little area so that sheep couldn't get in anymore and graze the spurge. And wouldn't you know that spurge bounced back within three years to its original amounts, uh, which happened to be over the grazing uh, threshold, which we'll talk about in a moment. So if you want to try this one, you're going to have to diversify your livestock portfolio for the long term, or you're going to have to pay somebody to come contract graze your spurge. 
if you can even find someone who will do that and they have a flock that's large enough to impact it. Another option is biological control agents, which we'll talk quite a bit about today, sometimes called biocontrol. So I will tell you more about those in a minute or so. This technique is more common and accessible than you would think, and that is because of these beneficial insects exist in low populations all over Manitoba. And that is because of a huge release program that they had about two decades ago. Not all of these beneficial insects have the same efficacy. Even for the best ones, there is an art to maximizing their effects over the long term. And then we have to think about integrated pest management. So you can integrate multiple methods. For example, you could use the cheaper biocontrol agents to keep the spurge population thin. And then to keep spurge from spreading beyond the existing patches, you can mow or apply the expensive chemicals only around the outside edges of the patch. So you use less chemical, less cost, right? And then you can spray any new patches that pop up accidentally. You mentioned the economic threshold. So what is the economic threshold or the amount at which cattle will reject grazing an area, which would then require the application of a control measure for leafy spurge? There's really very little research on action thresholds for leafy spurge. The one that I do have is based on cattle actually rejecting pasture. So there is a research project done in Montana, I think in the 90s, where they actually measured in a spurge pasture how much forage the cattle were eating in some spots and how many stems of spurge existed in those same spots. So they found that the cattle utilization of spurge-infested areas crashed at about 120 stems per meter squared, translated into uh, imperial, that's 11 stems per square foot. So it is quite, quite a thick amount. But, you know, it's not, it's not that simple. You know, a question I have is, you know, what do those 11 stems look like? Are they tall stems with a big, healthy canopy? Or are they just piddly little eight inch tall stems or less and not very healthy and flowering? Because I would think, you know, those little little ones uh, that aren't very healthy would be smaller uh, with lots of room around them for grass to grow and uh, for cattle to, to eat around them. That's something I guess we could research a little further at MBFI to try and understand this action threshold better and to get some more numbers. Because like I said, There's only one number that I have from from research. So I use 120 stems per meter squared or 11 stems per square foot. And you've used the term biological control or biocontrol already. Can you just give us a bit of a definition of what it means to use a biological control for invasive weeds like leafy spurge? Uh, For leafy spurge, biocontrol is simply adding insects. So uh, various flies, moths, and beetles that are natural enemies of leafy spurge. Uh, Some of these insects are effective only in their adult stage, and some are most effective actually as as larvae or little worms. So these biocontrols were imported from throughout Europe and only after extensive research about whether or not they will survive, if they'll breed, which plant species they will target, and how effective they are. CFIA approval and permitting is required for importing them from another country. But uh, we don't have to worry so much about that because we already have the most effective ones throughout Manitoba already, thanks to that big release program I mentioned earlier. And what are some of the biocontrols that have been used in the past to reduce leafy spurge? Probably the most common ones that we have used and continue to use today are the leafy spurge flea beetles, leafy spurge hawk moths, leafy spurge gull midges, and leafy spurge tires. You may also find leafy spurge stem borers occasionally if you're lucky and can recognize the plant uh, when it's being impacted. Notice how I use uh, leafy spurge in front of all those critters. Uh, and that's to to show that they are specifically targeting leafy spurge only and nothing else. So generally speaking, can you tell me about the history of the black and brown flea beetle releases 
and how this has evolved. Black and brown, you kind of oversimplify our flea beetle diversity, but actually there's about six species of these flea beetles tried in North America, and only three or four of them have successfully colonized. The reason why we call them black and brown is just they're so very challenging to identify. So we just just call them black and brown. Uh, There's two species that look brown and two species that look black. So like I mentioned before, uh, these come from a place in the world, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, where they're natural enemies of spurge, which is also Central Eastern Europe and also in Asia. These beetles were imported in the 1980s and studied extensively, again, to see if they only target leafy spurge, how effective they are at it, and if they will adapt and survive in our conditions. So then we moved to the 1990s and early 2000s in Manitoba, where we had the Leafy Spurge Stakeholders Group. And with the support of Agriculture Canada and CFIA, they brought beetles and other biocontrol agents into Canada from North Dakota and Montana. So at the time, it was quite a frenzy bringing all these beetles in. It was happening everywhere by many different agencies, and it was really quite popular at the time. Many were distributed on affected lands throughout Manitoba, and I know for sure they went into all of the PFRA pastures that had spurge. Maybe that was something like five pastures in Manitoba and and quite a number more in uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, The beetles went to MBFI First Street Pasture, uh, which at the time was uh, managed by Agriculture Canada. They also went on RM land around Brandon and elsewhere. They went on wildlife management areas by Manitoba Conservation, to Spruce Woods Provincial Park, and even quite a number of private producers tried them as well. And, you know, I still find remnant populations of them in many of those places. I had a producer that uh, had a spurge problem that they wanted me to look at. And, you know, so I started working on it and uh, I was noticing it already had beetles on it. So somewhere far back in the past, uh, that producer had somebody come and drop beetles. And uh, they said, well, I just assumed they were dead. (laughs) Over time, fortunately, many things have happened since those heydays of spurge flea beetle distributions. Unfortunately, the Leafy Spurge Stakeholders Group merged into an invasive species council for Manitoba. That group had had such a large number of other weeds and aquatic innovators to manage that the spurge efforts kind of got diluted. And then maybe about 10 10 years ago, funding opportunities for spurge work and and weed work disappeared out of Manitoba and, and other places in Canada. And then since then, many of the the Spurge stakeholders uh, have retired or moved on to different work. I'm finding knowledge about these times is hanging on by a thread. And thanks to MBFI, I'm able to uh, rejuvenate and spread some of that knowledge from from those heydays. And I'll just give a shout out here to Grant Schufelt, who is out there in Argyle Lauren Weed Management District, carrying and using his own Spurge flea beetle knowledge from, from those days. Do the beetles migrate or will they move from an area as the spurge population spreads? Will the beetles also spread or do they kind of not reproduce quick enough to keep up with that spread? I think they spread faster than we give them credit for. I have seen in an, in an area where I worked on that, uh, you know, there seemed to be no, no beetles on like neighboring properties, even though there was spurge there. But as I worked uh, with this particular site, over five years, uh, I found that the beetles were spreading onto those adjacent properties. So I imagine to a limited degree, they can they can migrate uh, as long as there's spurge for them to eat. And how quickly does the spurge itself spread? Oh, it's hard to say. I remember in Saskatchewan, uh, there was a community pasture there. They have on record it had a thousand acres of spurge. Uh, in one year. And I think eight to 10 years later, it had spread 8,000 acres. So it had, you know, multiplied by eight times over eight, eight years, from what I faintly recall. You might have a small patch for a number of years, and then it 
you know, some environmental condition like a drought or, or wherever it might just make it explode. Okay. And it would depend how you're managing the land as well. Because I think on grazing lands, you know, where you, the animals are focusing on eating the grass, then they'll give a competitive advantage to the leafy spurge because they're not eating the spurge right. Mm-hmm. And then with that deep, extensive root system, when you have a drought, the plant can access water from somewhere. So it has any advantage of, uh, you know, against other grasses, which are more shallow rooted. I was amazed by how big you said the root is. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's powerful. Like I mm-hmm. said, one of the most powerful weeds I know of. Back to our original questions. Are these flea beetles different from what we consider a pest in canola fields? Oh, definitely. Uh, I get that question a lot because they're little tiny black beetles that jump. And uh, yeah, so that's part of the reason why I try and call them the spurge flea beetles, hopefully to make that distinction. They're not even cousins to the flea beetle that ravages canola and other plants in the cabbage family. Uh, Spurge flea beetles will not attack canola. Um, And yeah, it's tough to tell them apart. I think the spurge flea beetles might be slightly larger. But uh, I mean, when you when you only have one beetle or the other, it's it's tough to mm-hmm. tell which is the larger one. I was going to say, into the naked eye, probably too. Even if they were side by side, you might not notice the the difference. I'm sure there's qualities about their legs or the shape of their body or the types of antenna they have. I don't know. Yeah, it's even hard to tell the different flea beetles apart. And how do spurge flea beetles assist in the reduction of leafy spurge? The flea beetle adults, so that's the little black beetle that you see, they'll eat the vegetation, uh, you know, off of the stems of spurge. And they'll do that from late June through to August. I've seen them in August, but they're they're most abundant in July. But it's the larvae, the little worms, part of their life cycle that does the greatest damage. They go down into the roots and they'll chew on the roots from July as soon as they hatch out of their eggs. They'll go to freeze up, and then, you know, in spring when it, when the soil warms up again, they'll eat some more, and then come June, they'll emerge as adults. And when do they have the biggest impact on spurge stands? I would say it's at the root stage when the larvae are chewing on the roots. So, you know, you can count on their services from late July, I would say, uh, through to early June of the following year except for a pause in winter when they're napping due to the soil being too cold. From the initial work on biological control agents at First Street Pasture from 2015 to 2017, the objectives were to categorize existing leafy spurge and biocontrol agent populations, demonstrate the impact of grazing on spurge flea beetle population size and efficacy, demonstrate timelines for expected results from biocontrol measures, and to demonstrate how to access and monitor biological control agent populations. Can you share the overall key takeaways from this study? So this study was to try and compare ungrazed to grazed grassland effects on spurge and on the flea beetles that we released at the time. But pre-existing populations of spurge flea beetles, like I mentioned before at that pasture, that kind of screwed up the measurements because they were there, they were in low amounts, and it was hard to tell how many. But out of that project, we did get some good achievements in other ways. So we were able to improve our understanding of the existing spurge populations at the pasture and also the pre-existing control biocontrol populations. It also helped us to uh, get familiar with methods of surveying the spurge and for surveying the spurge flea beetles. In a 2016 project that was led by Jane Thornton, started building on evaluation of the impact of grazing on spurge. The demonstration study looked at training cattle to consume leafy spurge despite having a strong aversion. Why are cattle adverse to grazing spurge? Uh, There's two reasons. Simply that it is an unfamiliar plant. They're not familiar with eating it. And when they do eat it, there happens to be a compound in it, which in certain amounts can cause negative responses 
uh, in the rumen. And that project applied the Kathy Voth method of teaching cattle to eat weeds program. Can you outline how that training program works? It's quite a detailed schedule and uh, and the reasoning behind it. But essentially, what you're trying to do is get cattle familiar with trying different things, and you want it to be a good experience for them. So you start out by feeding a variety of different yummy things over a number of days. For example, one day you might feed a little bit of hay cubes, and another day you'll feed a little bit of corn. And you'll do that for, you know, several, seven feeds, I think. This will give them a good experience with tasting unusual things. And then you start to introduce the not-so-yummy things gradually. For example, a little bit of fresh-cut spurge topped with oat bran. And at the very end of of the training process, you end off with one or two feedings of straight fresh-cut spurge. We don't confine them while they're doing this. We don't force feed them. The aim is really just to get them comfortable with trying various new things. That way, you know, when they go out to a pasture that has spurge in it and they get a snout full of spurge, they won't be so revulsed and and they won't avoid uh, grazing that area in the future because of that yellow flower. It's also hoped that the the cows will teach their offspring uh, to be tolerant of trying new things. And so in the end, uh, you hope to get a herd that is not averse to using spurge pastures. And what cautions need to be considered or were considered in this study as far as animal health? The big thing is is the myth about spurge being poisonous. And that myth is so ingrained in our body of knowledge about spurge because there's lots of documents out there that say spurge is poisonous to cattle. But if you look at those documents and you trace back the references to the original evidence... The original source is is very unsound, not scientific at all. Basically, the story goes that there were some horses in a pasture, and they lost hair on their legs, and the pasture had spurge in it. Somehow they connected some dots together, and so that made the spurge eligible to be in a poisonous plant book that came out in 1939. That's where, if you trace all the references back, you come out at that book. So this argument is pretty weak for spurge being a skin irritant and certainly not evidence of it being poisonous to cattle. But that's that's not saying there isn't any evidence. Because in the 1970s and the 1980s, scientists did identify a skin irritant compound called inganol in the spurge. And then in 2006, somebody did a laboratory test tube study that showed cattle rumen fluids interacting with a spurge can cause discomfort in the rumens. And that's because it kind of makes the the irritant uh, a little bit more toxic. But they did experiments with the rumen bacteria and these chemicals, and they found that uh, the chemicals did not inhibit the bacteria from digesting the rest of the forage. When we look at reality, like this was a test tube study, When we look at reality, cattle are getting a balanced diet of grass and spurge, you know, if they're in a spurge pasture. Actually, with grass far outweighing the amount of spurge that they're going to take in. And like I mentioned before, with this study, there was no confined feeding, no force feeding of spurge in any of the MBFI projects. Cattle are not going to go out voluntarily and just eat large amounts of spurge and neglect the grass in the pasture. So regardless of all this, an informal animal health review was done of this study before it even started, and a veterinarian consulted before the first training began in 2016. Even in 2021, after Jane Thornton retired and I became in charge of the training required to finish out her project, the MBFI general manager reviewed that issue with me again in depth. So we've looked at it several times. MBFI is doing their due diligence in the way of making sure the cattle are healthy uh, while doing this uh, training project. It sounds like it. And it sounds like if there were listeners or producers out there who were wanting to try this, that they definitely could reach out at any time with MBFI and kind of see how the process worked and review some of those things that those precautions just in case. Absolutely. Yes. 
How well did the training work and how were cattle observed to graze spurge in the pasture? Well, it was pretty interesting. Uh, we learned a lot about how to conduct the training. We got some good videos of and, and photographs of cattle with spurge in their mouths. And, you know, the spurge would disappear out of the feeding buckets. They, yeah, they were turned off by it. You know, they weren't as enthusiastic about it as, you know, eating hay cubes or rolled corn or anything else. But uh, we've learned a lot about the training and also things that sort of antagonize the experience. Like, you know, what you're doing is you, you have a, a field full of cattle and the cows are coming in. When you bring some feeds out, they're all excited and they're leaving their calves behind in the in the pasture. And then there's a kind of a, there's a moment of panic, you know, when they're done doing whatever it is, they're, when they come to, to feed on the feeds and the calves are missing. So there's kind of that little bit of panic there. So we need to figure out how to, how to get them in to try the feeds. And then, you know, when they're done, not have to worry about the calves. Like I said before, we want this all to be a positive, joyful experience to minimize negative experiences. So we need to, you know, figure out that part. Each year, the, the training went reasonably well. We had we actually have pretty low standards. What we want is just for them to try it, because we want them to not be afraid to try new things, to not be afraid to accidentally get a mouthful of spurge when they're grazing out in the pasture. So for measuring the effects of this training, the MBFI staff, they, they went out to a, any paddock that had been recently grazed. So they'll go out, you know, within a day or maybe even five days after that paddock has been grazed. And so they'll go and they'll count the, the number of spurge plants within a, within a sample frame, like a, a 50 centimeter by 50 centimeter frame. And so they'll count the number of plants that have actually been grazed by cattle, uh, that have been trampled by cattle, or that have had any other negative effects from any other reason. Analyzing this result is is not perfect because we do not have, uh, you know, another herd to compare against, you know, an untrained herd that's using, you know, the same kind of pasture, the same kind of cows, same kind of spurge cover, same kind of grazing management. We didn't have that that comparison available to make. So it's not a perfect comparison. All we can say is, is what the absolute results were, you know, in the frames we studied with this herd. And that leads really well into the next question, which is what percentage of leafy spurge was consumed in pasture by cattle after the training? So Jane's project happened over two years. So in 2016, uh, she measured about 9% on average of spurge stem sampled uh, had been grazed by cattle. The following year, it was only about 5%, but uh, they noted an additional 14% of the spurge stems were damaged with trampling. So, you know, between 9% and, I'm going to say, 19% uh, of damage by cattle is, is pretty decent, uh, especially when you take into account other things that are happening to the spurge at the pasture. How did this impact the leafy spurge populations in areas where cattle were damaging it through grazing or trampling? I would say it has a minimum effect on the spurge population. To me, it's like, go back to my examples of what are the common treatments of spurge. It would be like applying 2,4-D or mowing the spurge because you're just doing top kill, but you're only doing it to, you know, between 9 and 19% of the stems. So you're mowing it, but you're not mowing all the stems. In itself, it is not very effective. But if we were to, you know, take that 9 to 19% of damage and add it to the other damages of, you know, what the existing biological control agents are doing, we get a pretty decent cumulative impact against the spurge. I can't remember what the numbers are, but we're hitting the spurge pretty hard with, with all that combination of treatments. And with regards to this this cattle grazing project, we're just very happy that we now have cows that can tolerate eating amongst leafy spurge plants and that don't reject the pasture. And can you share any additional overall takeaways from the two-year evaluation? Basically, it's just a low-cost, harmless way to reclaim a, a spurge pasture for your cows. It won't eliminate the spurge. 
but at least your cows will have a higher tolerance for spurge infestations. The best results would come if you uh, use it in combination with other control techniques, uh, especially the biological control agents. For the project, understanding and manipulating leafy spurge population with cattle grazing and biological control agents, which ran from 2019 to 2021, can you share how this work built on the previous years of data collection? This project was nice because they allowed us to combine all the spurge work together. So it was helpful to combine the previous two projects into one and to allow them to continue. We kept the study that was comparing the grazed versus ungrazed grassland effects on spurge and spurge flea beetles, hoping for better results. Uh, you know, it was low effort to measure it. So, you know, not a lot of effort wasted because unfortunately we still didn't get any consistent trends and patterns out of the out of that study. The cattle training exercises continued. We continued to develop a herd that, that was made up of cows having um, between one and four years of training. So a lot of these cows had several years of spurge training. Now we have a herd that appears to tolerate grazing amongst spurge plants, even in some places where it looks to be high in density. They won't deplete that spurge where they're grazing, but we do have data that shows as much as 24 stems per meter squared are being bit by cattle. Quite often, it's just one to eight stems per meter squared. But you can add all those effects of existing biocontrol agents and get a decent cumulative impact of all that against the spurge. And as a side benefit of all this data collection, uh, we have over 1,200 detailed subsamples of spurge populations throughout First Street Pasture. So we're gaining a great understanding of the spurge distribution throughout the pasture in the presence and effects of biological control agents and grazing. So this data actually shows that all the different biocontrols, plus cattle grazing, plus the way the pasture is being managed and has been managed in the past, all of that keeps about 90% of the pasture under that 120 stem per meter squared usability limit that I mentioned before. Basically, in other words, if you use that 120 stems per meter squared as a dividing line between how much pasture is useless and how much can be usable, only about 10% of this pasture is theoretically not available due to spurge. For a pasture that has had spurge for decades, that is a pretty good level of lost pasture compared to other places around Brandon that I've seen with spurge infestations. You've maybe alluded to this already in that answer, but what trends were observed over that time frame? I guess we've seen that spurge populations have remained stable and cattle kept learning to eat leafy spurge. In 2020, we, we did not do the spurge training, but we still did the measurements. And we found that they were still, still grazing the, the spurge uh, during that year. So it kind of shows that the herd has the knowledge and, and it's carrying on through time. In 2022, the project Exploring Enhanced Biocontrol Techniques for Controlling Leafy Spurge started. How does this demonstration study build on your previous experience? Well, first of all, we have seen in Manitoba that the historical approach for using spurge flea beetles, which has basically been dump them in the pasture and leave them, this hasn't been working. So many beetles were released in so many places over two decades ago with that like massive frenzy of, of beetle collections and releases that I talked about earlier. Yet, there is still so much spurge around this new project that we have going on, it takes what I've been learning incidentally from a number of previous projects, including MBFI, including other places. What I've been learning about the life cycle and population migrations of spurge flea beetles. I've actually had success with uh, another project in the Brandon area uh, using spurge flea beetles. In this project, uh, the spurge was virtually eliminated after five years of intensive beetle releases and management. Now, this isn't a miracle. The spurge is coming back, but I think it's mostly coming back from seed. 
So, you know, a year or two or three, you'll probably just have to reapply the techniques again. But there'll be less spurge to apply to, I think. But, uh, you know, based on that success, I want to see if I can try and replicate that uh, at First Street Pasture. And most importantly, I want to to document it somehow. Because, you know, I was just kind of doing that other thing in my personal time and just not taking the time to document it properly. I honestly didn't expect that level of success. And when I saw it, I'm like, I want to try this some more. The second thing is, and probably the most important intent of this six-year project, is to establish MBFI as a good support to producers for spurge biocontrol. There are people still out there asking, how do I do this? And where do I get beetles? That's a really good question. Where do people go to get beetles if they're interested? Currently, uh, they somehow make their way to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, so the demand is is increasing. They're, they found out that Jane Thornton has retired. I think she bore the brunt for many years of people asking about where they could get beetles. Now a lot of that has come to me. I mean, it's not my primary job. I like to dabble in it, but uh, there's just there's just too much work out there just for me. Mm-hmm. The 2022 project has only had one field season of data so far, but has anything stood out to you in this data? Not at all. It's what I like about it. It's a typical infestation uh, of leafy spurge. So it's quite abundant, and that makes it a good spot for, for demonstrating uh, this enhanced spurge biocontrol technique. And given the massive challenge of leafy spurge across the province, what do you hope to see in future research and demonstration? What I'd like to see, and I alluded to this kind of before, is I'd like to see more leaders in this province for invasive weed research in general and for supporting landowners in their fight against invasive weeds, especially on pastures. I mean, we, we see a lot a lot of support for weed management or weed education on croplands, you know, because of the serious economic impacts. But uh, yeah, there certainly isn't much uh, regarding pastures and, and wild areas. Right now for Spurge, it's kind of just me and one other person and MBFI. And me, I'm doing it off the corner of my desk or during my personal time even. So I'm hoping this new project at First Street goes well for MBFI uh, and that they can become, you know, more of a lead in demonstrating and facilitating spurge biocontrol throughout this province. And we're kind of getting to the end here of the episode. If producers want to learn more about leafy spurge than what you've shared today, or about flea beetle releases or training cattle to consume leafy spurge, what resources would you recommend or who could they contact to find out more? Well, there's so much information on the web for starts. You know, it's full of resources, so many things to read, a lot of videos to watch about, you know, how you can collect spurge beetles and and move them around. Uh, So just look up keywords, look up leafy spurge, especially team leafy spurge. And that was a large task force uh, with the United States Department of Agriculture that worked on spurge over two decades ago. You can look up spurge flea beetle and find a lot of information. If you want to learn more about the cattle grazing or, or cattle training, look up Kathy Voth, K-A-T-H-Y-V-O-T-H, spurge, for more about that uh, aspect. Uh, She's also got other excellent information about invasive plants. If you want to see what's relevant to Canada, just search for Spurge Manitoba or Spurge Alberta. I regret to say the uh, Invasive Species Council of Manitoba is is kind of inactive, but their website is still up and they still have some good information on it, some good links to other information. Rural Development Institute, or RDI, at Brandon University two decades ago, or even even like 12 years ago, they were working in the area of leafy spurge. And one of their big last hurrahs was that 2010 impact statement uh, that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. You might find other interesting reports from them if you search RDI spurge. 
And then MBFI has most of their project reports on their website too and in the podcast notes. Yeah, hopefully uh, by the time the podcast airs, the final report for the cattle grazing project and also the first report uh, for the new beetle project uh, will be posted. And we will make sure that those are included in the show notes so listeners can link to them. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't touched on before we wrap up today? I guess uh, the only thing I haven't really covered is is timing of spurge treatments, uh, and that, that would be primarily the biocontrol uh, and even the grazing treatments as well. If you hear this podcast and you, you want to start treating your spurge this year, you should kind of have your studying done, have your research done, and have, have a, a very good plan laid out by about the end of June. And uh, the reason why I say this is that by about the third week of June, the, the beetles start uh, emerging from, from, the, from the soil. And uh, the best time to collect them is, is late June, early July. And uh, yeah, so timing, uh, I would encourage you to get started if you want to do something this year. Thank you so much for joining me today and for all of your work that you've done over the past many years on Leafy Spurge. And hopefully this gets to the ears of producers who can use this information and help to be part of a solution to the problem before it's too far out of hand on their own land. This is a great step in in making this podcast and uh, helping me spread what I've learned to uh, a greater audience. Thank you. Thank you. We wanted to let listeners know that this episode was prepared and recorded in January of 2023 as I'm taking a short leave from MBFI. Because of this, some of the conversations may seem like they are relating to past information or slightly out of context with the current time. We will resume regular recordings in the summer of 2023. Thank you for your patience. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.